Good morning, friends. Very good to be with all of you guys today. Um, hey, so uh, as Doug mentioned, next week the weather is supposed to be great. We've got, uh, if you haven't done this before, we like rent a ton of chairs and the stage and all this stuff and set it up uh, on the cliffs out there. It's super fun. Uh, probably need a sweater. It's usually a little cold. Right now the forecast says it's going to be sunny and great. If next Sunday morning you wake up and it is not sunny and great, if it is rainy and miserable, then come here instead. We'll, uh, we'll send out an email if that's the case. But so far, clear sailing on that. Hey, uh, one of the things that we are really focused on praying for this year is praying about the, the possibility of buying our own building. Uh, we love this space. It has treated us really well. But as the rent goes up each year, it's... It, it's become somewhat prohibitive, and just looking down the road, we're wondering, okay, how long is it going to make sense for us to be in this space? So uh, we're praying about this and just asking God to guide us to be the best stewards of the finances he's entrusted us with and to be able to be the best conduits of mission we can and not be spending an inordinate amount of money just keeping the lights on. So uh, I want to pray for that. And will you join me in praying for that this morning and continue, please, to pray for this? as we seek God. <clears throat> Lord, we, um, we're just so grateful for the way that you have always cared for us as a congregation. And even looking back over the years, the, the various places that we've met, uh, many, many spots on the South Bay where we've rented space, and then uh, the last maybe 10 years or so, uh, having our own space here. We're so grateful for it and so grateful for the way that it is meeting our needs. And at the same time, we want to be attentive to your spirit and how you might be leading us. So God, would you just give us collectively a sense of what you're doing, of how you're moving. Uh, if it is indeed the time for us to move from being renters to owners, we pray that uh, that would be something that collectively we really sense as a church. And God, we pray that you would provide as well. Uh, we all know it's, it's no small thing acquiring property in this part of the world. And so, God, we pray that you would guide us and also provide us as you do so. Uh, we open ourselves to your will for us, God. We want nothing else. And uh, we give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. All right, friends. So it's Palm Sunday, right? Uh, there are palm fronds behind me. Doug's making puns about palm things. I'll, I'll probably pun too. I can't help it. Uh, but Palm Sunday, it, it begins Holy Week. Uh, in, in the Christian tradition, this week leading up to Good Friday, where we commemorate the death of Christ, and then Easter Sunday as we commemorate Jesus' resurrection. And it starts with today. It starts with Palm Sunday, uh, when Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And I, I want us to ask the question this morning, what does Palm Sunday mean anyway? Uh, for those who, who don't have a Christian background, it can seem really odd, right? Why is your God riding on a donkey into a city while people lay their cloaks on the ground and children wave palm branches in the air, right? What does this mean? Uh, it, it, can, you know, it can seem a little funny. For those who do have a Christian background, Palm Sunday can seem really odd. Why is our God riding on a donkey while people lay down their cloaks and children wave palm branches? What does this mean? It's not necessarily self-evident, but it's, it's actually, it's really important. 
Uh, it's not just the entrance into this Holy Week. It, it is actually an event that's packed with significance, that's packed with symbolic meaning. It's Jesus making a declaration that he is, in fact, the coming king. And just as importantly, he's talking about, uh, through his actions, the kind of king that he is going to be. Uh, so this morning, I want to get into some of the details of the passage together and, and see if we can't unpack that meaning a little bit. It paints a great picture of what Jesus came to do and of why that is so important for you and I and how we live our lives. So uh, let, me, uh, let me pray once again. Let's look at the text together. Uh, Father God, we are so grateful for who you are and for how you love us. And as we come to this most important part of the Christian year, we, we pray, God, that we would have eyes and ears that are attuned to your spirit, that we would have hearts that are open, that your word would find good soil in us in which to take root. And God, I, I pray for each of us this morning, uh, for those who have been walking with you for their whole lives and those who maybe are just exploring that. We pray, God, that you would meet us wherever we're at, that you would, all, you would draw us all closer to Jesus. Uh, so God, speak to us this morning through your word, by your spirit. We trust you for this. In Christ's name, amen. All right, friends, so what does Palm Sunday mean? What does it say about who Jesus is and what that means to you and I? So the first thing that we want to note here as we come to this passage is that Jesus came to bring us peace. He came to bring us peace. Uh, this is Matthew 21, verse 1. You can read along in your Bible or read on the screen. It says, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them back right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle, and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. All right, so whatever we make of this, whatever we do and don't understand in it, it's quite a scene, yes? I mean, it's, uh, uh, you've got this scenario where after three years of Jesus traveling throughout uh, the nation of Israel, there's a sizable number of people who have heard him teaching, who have heard his announcement that the kingdom of God is coming, uh, who have seen him heal and whatnot. And uh, there's a lot who are convinced or are suspecting that Jesus is the Messiah that Israel has been waiting for and praying for, the long-awaited king who would throw out the Romans, restore Israel to its former glory. And Passover week was an especially important time for this and a very charged time in Israel. Because in Passover, 
they're celebrating when, uh, when the Egyptians were thrown off, right? When Israel was oppressed by another people. And so it was always a time with a lot of tension and the Romans were a bit on edge. You know, what does it mean as we're now the oppressors of these people as they're celebrating past liberation from oppression? And so as this happens, the question is always hanging over the Israel, Israelite people. Is this the time when God will send his promised deliverer, this new king, king with a capital K, the one that has to come and the one that will set us free? And there's a lot of folks this particular time that are thinking that might be Jesus. And so as he comes into Jerusalem, Jesus chooses to make a particular statement about who he is. And his statement is unmistakable that, yes, he is the king, but uh, he's also making a statement about the particular kind of king that he would be. So it starts with a donkey, right? And this is, this is really the first symbol that we see on Palm Sunday. The donkey is actually really important. And the scene around the donkey is just kind of delightful too, right? It's just a funny little footnote in the story where he's like, go in and find a donkey. And if, if somebody asks you, why are you taking it? Just say, oh, the Lord needs it and it'll be okay. Right? It's like, these aren't the donkeys you're looking for. Little, little Jedi mind trick, and boom, they take the donkey, and they're like, oh, okay, fine. And sure enough, he goes riding into the city on a donkey. Now, here's the thing. For us, we don't tend to think of a donkey as a majestic animal. This is not transportation that is well-suited for a king in our minds, right? If, uh, if a donkey, say, appears in a movie or something, it's, it's more of like a punchline. Right? The hero, the conqueror, he comes in on a horse. The goofy sidekick, he rides in on the donkey with the hat that's all misshapen and all the things. Right? Or we think of Shrek, right? who longs to be a noble stallion, but he's stuck being a lowly donkey, that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, for them, the donkey actually carried a lot of significance. And kings sometimes would ride a donkey, but it depended on the occasion. You would only ride a donkey if you were coming in peace, if you were coming for war, then you'd come on a horse. And it sent a message in the ancient world. Uh, if a king came and you knew their intentions before they even got there just because of the mode of transport. So maybe think of it like this, right? In, in our day and age, maybe in, uh, uh, imagine a scenario where we've got, uh, we've got a general of an army, someone who's sort of supreme commander in the military. And if that person rolls up into your territory and they're in camouflage fatigues and they're riding in a tank and there is an army coming behind them, you know this is not going to go well. But if that same general comes and they're in their, their dress fatigues, wearing their medals and their ribbons and a proper hat and maybe a little pipe like MacArthur, and they come in a jeep, and there's soldiers coming with them, but they aren't, uh, they aren't weapons at the ready. They're holding a white flag. You know, okay, this general is coming to talk terms. He's coming to talk peace. Uh, this is the same thing in the ancient world. If a king showed up riding a horse, it was game on. But if a king comes riding a donkey... Well, that's something altogether different. That's a king who is coming in peace and coming to make peace. Jesus came to bring us peace. 
And we should note, and this kind of comes up later in the story, but this is a mixed bag for the people of Israel. Not everyone wanted a king that came in peace. There were plenty of people who wanted a king on a war horse who would tell Rome what was up and boot him out and, you know, we're, we're going to go for it right now. Let's have the war. Let's get it done. But Jesus comes. He comes declaring peace. And for those who had been following Jesus those three years, they know that it's about more than Rome that Jesus had a much bigger battle in mind. His aim was not just to make peace in the here and now, but to make peace between us and God. And he did this by taking the punishment that was coming towards us because of our sin. This can be a weird concept, and I think we should, we should hang on this for just a minute here. If, if God loves us, why do we need Jesus to bring peace? Right? Why is there anything but peace between us and God to begin with? Uh, but the way that the New Testament puts it, it can sound a little weird to our ears, but the way the New Testament says it is that we are actually enemies of God. This is Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. It says, You are God's enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. So Paul says here, and it says elsewhere in the New Testament too, you were God's enemies. That in your natural state, uh, it's, it's not just that you're indifferent. There is actually an adversarial relationship between us and God, which is weird because I think, I think most of us, if, uh, either where we're at now or if you can remember a time when you didn't want God in your life, uh, then it's not so much in our minds a matter of me being God's enemy. It's more like I just want him to leave me alone, right? I just want to live my life. I don't want to think about him. I don't want him speaking into what I do. But the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, actually explain to us through a lot of different biblical images that that's not actually the way it is. It's not just us being indifferent and passive on the outside. We're actually described as rebels. And the scriptures use images like this of of us as the subjects of a king who don't want that person as king. And so we rebel against that king's authority. Or another image that comes up is that of an adulterous spouse who, despite having a loving husband, keeps pursuing and sleeping with other men. Or another image is of a child who's raised by loving parents who meet that child's every need, but then that child grows up and turns on his parents. It's this idea that there is this this very tangible separation. There is a hostility between us and God. And it's not there because of any lack of affection on his part. It's because we are determined in our natural state to live our lives our own way and to say to him, keep your distance. I don't care that you made me. I don't care that you sustain me. I don't care that you love me. I want you over there while I do my thing over here. And there's a separation that comes because of that that has to be bridged. When the scriptures tell us in these different ways that Jesus has come to bring peace, 
to end that oppositional adversarial relationship between us. It's declaring that God loves us enough to do something to fix what we can't fix ourselves. And so as as Paul says here in Colossians, Jesus, in his death, in his physical body, he takes on himself the punishment for our sins and gives us the opportunity to have that peace with God. And we see that, we see that on Palm Sunday as well. Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey saying, whatever else has happened, I am here to bring you peace. That's the first message we see in Palm Sunday. The second is this, it's that Jesus came to bring us justice. Reading on the next verse, verse 12, it says, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. So, Jesus came to bring justice. And Jesus, in this scene, he comes into the temple and he sees it's become this marketplace, right? Uh, And he starts trashing their vendor booths, drives them all out. And, you know, again, the question comes up for us, what is up with that? You know, does Jesus just hate Christian merchandising? Too many figurines? You know, what? Uh, He might, I don't know. But this isn't that. This, too, is a, a highly symbolic action. And specifically, it's this. Jesus is responding to foreigners and the poor being excluded and exploited in the nation of Israel's worship. Let me explain. So it worked like this. So uh, Jesus was coming from the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem, yes? And even today, if you, you take that same route, you can actually walk it. It's a pretty small distance. But if you come into the city that way, you come into the city directly into the temple. And as you enter the temple, the first thing that you come to, you pass through this big gate, and you're led into this outermost court of the temple. And, and the temple was, and kind of still is, made of, of kind of these concentric courts that gets you closer and closer to the center. And the outermost court, the one that Jesus would have entered into first as he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, it's called the court of the Gentiles. Right? And a Gentile is somebody who's not an Israelite, somebody who uh, was, was a Greek or African or some other nationality. And if you are an outsider to, to, uh, to Israel in that time, if you're an outsider to Israel, but you believed in the God of Israel, you would come to the temple to worship, perhaps, maybe come on a pilgrimage. If you did, it would probably be during Passover. And you could worship in this place called the Court of the Gentiles. Now, that was as far as you could go. You couldn't go any further into the temple. And there is actually a sign there that that said, under penalty of death, if you are not Jewish, you can't come beyond this point. And so that's, that's the Court of the Gentiles. And that's where Jesus is where this takes place. Now, hold on to that one for a second. Um, And this doesn't enter into this story, but it's kind of important. So if you went past the court of the Gentiles, there's another court inside of that. And that one is called the court of the women. And if you were a Jewish woman, then you could go further than the court of the Gentiles. You could go into the second court, and you could be in the court of the women. 
Now, that was as far as you could go as a worshiper of the God of Israel if you were a woman. Now, inside of that, they had what was called the court of the Israelites. And this was the court that anyone could go to if they were Jewish, providing their male, right? It's kind of misnamed. It should have been called the court of Jewish men, but it's not. They called it the court of the Israelites, but it really was for men only. And so you could go that far into the temple if you were a Jewish man. And then inside of that, they had the, the court of the priests. And that's where the sacrifices were made and, and all of those things. So following that, can you kind of picture all this? Okay. So uh, that being the case, Jesus, as he clears out the temple, he's standing in the court of the Gentiles. And he gets there and he discovers there's two groups of people that are mentioned, the money changers and then those who are selling doves. And the money changers. So here's the deal with the money changers. So if, if you were coming to the temple and you were bringing your offering, you couldn't bring just any money into the temple. Uh, they didn't allow any type of coin that had the inscription of a person on it. So like the common Roman denarius, it had a picture of Caesar on it. So you couldn't bring that into the temple. That was forbidden. So you had to, if you were going to make a sacrifice, you were going to give an offering, and you're a foreigner, you're coming in with foreign currency. And so you have to change out your currency before you go any further. It's kind of like when you're in the airport in a foreign country, and you're like, oh, that's right, they don't take U.S. dollars, and you've got to do the thing. So they're doing the thing. They're exchanging the money. And the other gospel writers make clear that they were gouging people for this. They were just nailing them to exchange their money and allow them to come and to worship God in the temple, taking advantage because, you know, it's the only game in town. Uh, they're going to get whatever they're asking for, uh, for this exchange of money. It, it's a little bit like when you decide, you know what, I'm going to take the family to Disneyland. <laughs> it seems like a good idea, right? Until you realize it's going to cost you like $700 just to get in the gate. And you're like, when did the prices go up again? I can't believe it. And, you know, you're still so shell-shocked from this that you don't even think about how you're going to eat. But then you're in the park, and you discover you can't bring in your own food, and you can only eat their food. And it's like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to spend $200 more just feeding the family. They've got you, right? You're already there. There's nothing you can do. And that's kind of the situation that these worshipers would be in. They get to the temple, and they're an easy target for exploitation. Jesus sees this, and he's outraged by it. He sees this, and he, uh, he quotes the prophet Isaiah. My house will be a house of prayer. And if, if you flip to Isaiah, you see actually the full quote there is my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. And there are those who are deliberately standing in the way of the intention of the God of Israel for people of every color and race and ethnicity to be able to worship him. Not a new proclamation, by the way. This goes back to Abraham. But there were folks who were standing in the way of that. And Jesus isn't having it. Uh, that's the money changers. The second folks that are specifically mentioned in this marketplace going on in the temple uh, are those who are selling doves. And uh, the idea here 
is that if, if you're an Israelite and you're coming to worship in the temple, you bring a sacrifice with you. Or if uh, it says in, in the Old Testament law, if it's too far for you to bring an animal with you, if you live too, too far out in the sticks or whatever, you could just bring the money and buy an animal once you get to the temple. Now, for most Israelites, the offering that you would bring is you would bring a lamb, right? And perhaps you know about that, the Passover lamb. You would bring a lamb with you at Passover to be sacrificed. But there's a provision made in the law of Leviticus. There's a provision made that if you are poor and your family can't afford a lamb, you can bring a dove. Right? So maybe your family has fallen on hard times. Maybe, you know, your crops didn't take that year. Maybe there wasn't sufficient rain. For whatever reason, you find yourself in a place where you want to worship God, but money is going to be a barrier to that. Well, there, there's a provision, right? We've got a discounted way to bring a sacrifice to the temple, and that's, that's through offering a dove. But the same thing is happening there, too. The poor are coming into the temple. And they're there, and they, all they want is a dove to be able to make their sacrifice, to honor God, to seek forgiveness of sins for their family. And they, too, are being gouged. And there are those, again, who are exploiting what should just be the simple act of worship for their own profit, for their own gain. And Jesus responds in the words of the prophet Jeremiah. And he says, you have made this place a den of robbers. They were robbing the worshipers of their money and robbing the sanctuary of its sanctity. This place is supposed to be a house of worship and here they are taking advantage of immigrants and poor people. And Jesus isn't having it. And so he starts flipping tables and, you know, driving people out of the temple. And friends, this is a statement. Jesus is making a statement here in this action. It says, not just am I the king, but I'm coming as a just king. And all those scriptures, and there are many in the Old Testament, it says, do not take advantage of the immigrant and the poor person and the widow Jesus is saying, Those, that's for real. And when I come as king, it's going to be a reign of justice. Now, <clears throat> here's why I brought up those other, other courts in the temple as well. Now, you see why it's so significant when in the Gospels, you see Jesus on the regular ministering not just to the people of Israel and not just to men, but to foreigners and to women. And you see why it's so significant where Jesus says to the, uh, the officials at one time, he says, tear down this temple. He's referring to his body. Tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And you see why it's so significant when in the New Testament we see the, these early Christians are saying, we don't have a temple. We are the temple. When we come together and worship God, that is the temple. That is the place where God meets us, all of us. There's no barriers in that. There's no inner court and outer court. There's just one. Why it's so significant 
when Paul says in Galatians 3.28, and he says things similar elsewhere, but when he says, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In Christ, the ethnic barriers are torn down. The male-female divide is torn down. Those class divisions are torn down. Jesus, he is a king that brings justice and things that prevent us from connecting with God and things that separate us from one another. All those are things he's deeply concerned with. Right? And friends, you, you see how huge this is, yes? Our world around us says it's fine for you to divide along these lines. Hunker down, stick to your tribe, whatever you consider that to be, and the rest of the world be damned. But Jesus says, no, that's not the way it's meant to be. And we see in the New Testament how it was a struggle for the church to get their heads around this. This was a huge shift. And for us still, when in the church we treat women or foreigners as lesser, it shows that we're still struggling to get our heads around this. And listen, that's why for us as a church, that's why we believe it's so important that a church looks like its city. Uh, That we don't just have ethnic-specific churches for white people and for Asians and Latinos and blacks. Uh, we, we think there's something very powerful about living in a way where we're together. And we don't, we don't do this just because we think it's a good idea and certainly not because it's easy. We do it because Jesus came to bring justice and to tear down what separates us. Right? That's why we believe as a church that it is important the church ministers to the poor in their city, and we partner with groups like Communities Child and Family Promise, and, and we're praying for and exploring for, for some more hands-on ways this side of COVID that we can be ministering even better to the poor in our city. And it's not just because we think it's a good idea, but it's because Jesus is a king who brings justice. Uh, that's why you know, we're, we're planning a Brazilian church. And God willing, many more Brazilian churches. It's because God loves the immigrant. And we determine this is a tangible way. This is something we're kind of good at. This is a tangible way that we can minister to the immigrant population is by supporting a church for immigrants coming to this country. Again, it's not just because we think it's a good idea, but because Jesus came to bring justice and see that the immigrants thrive in the city in which they're found. That's why we've worked to establish a relationship with Torrance Police Department to speak into the policing in our city and ensure that law enforcement is fair and respectful and doesn't favor one group over another. And also that the police are treated like people, that they receive fair treatment as well. And it's not just because we think this is a good idea, friends. It's because God is a God of justice. And Jesus comes to see that justice is done. And that those who have power do not discriminate against those who do not. That's why we befriend our local mosque, to be a friend to religious minorities. That's why we speak up for the unborn. That's why we create a safe and supportive place for gay Christians who are following Jesus in celibacy. It's because Jesus 
is king. And he is a king that values justice. And this is us trying to live into, into what it means to follow that sort of king. Jesus came to bring us peace. He came to bring justice. And Jesus came, finally, he came to bring us healing. This is verse 14, reading on, it says, The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you Lord have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. So, following kind of our whole passage here. So Jesus rides into the city on a donkey, being praised as king by the people. Then he goes to the temple, interrupts the commerce there, throws out the money changers and those who are taking advantage of the poor. And in both of these, the religious leaders are not happy. Uh, We learn elsewhere they're actually plotting to kill him, even as this is happening. But all the while, even as this is happening, we're told that the blind and the lame are coming to Jesus and he heals them. And friends, in the Gospels, I mean, healings are wonderful, right? And I mean, what's not to like about somebody being healed? And they're miraculous and they're powerful. But they're more than that, too. And the word in the Gospels that's most often associated with healings is the word sign. In other words, the healings themselves are actually a sign of something greater. They have symbolic value as well. And it it goes like this. So sickness and disease, uh, these are not how God created the world to be. They're a product of the fall, a product of our sin coming into the world and staining everything. And also we're told sickness and disease, disease will not be part of the life that is to come. That is, as God's kingdom reigns, that those things will be absent from that time as well. So in the Old Testament, one of the images that you see a lot is is this idea that when God's kingdom comes, right, when when history is finally starting to work the way that it should, that God or the Messiah, depending on the passage, that one of the signs of this would be that they would heal the sick and the diseased. And you have passages that say things like the blind will see and like, The lame will skip. It's kind of a delightful little image. Not only can you walk again, but they'll skip. Uh, So, in the Gospels, when Jesus heals people, it kind of adds to the intrigue, right? Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the King, capital K, who will usher in God's kingdom? And Jesus, Jesus comes announcing the kingdom of God is here. Right? It's breaking in now. It's not yet complete. It will be when he returns, but it's breaking in now. And one sign of that are the healings that Jesus performs. Friends, Jesus didn't come only to forgive us, as crucial as that is. And without question, that is, that is our first and our greatest need, is to be saved from our sin. But it's not just that. And it's not just that Jesus came to bring justice as much as our broken world cries out 
for justice, but it's also to bring us healing. As the New Testament sometimes says, to make us whole, uh, to make us new. And certainly that takes place in God transforming our character. That's part of the healing that we need. Uh, But also, uh, we need to remind ourselves that God often brings healing now too. Sometimes when we pray, we see God break in. We see the kingdom breaking into the present in ways that are powerful and beautiful, in ways that we need to embrace, breaking it in the form of physical healing now. And some of you probably know this, but I, I don't know if all of you do. Um, you know, one of the coolest things uh, during our experience as a church during pandemic was uh, as soon as the, the shutdown happened and um, as soon as it, it was becoming clear just how serious uh, this disease was, uh, the vision team uh, decided that we needed to fast and pray for health in the church. And, uh, and everybody took one day of the week and would fast on that day and pray for health in the church. And we prayed Psalm 91, which look it up later, but it's, it's just a really beautiful prayer about God bringing health and healing. And we prayed that over the church from, uh, from the beginning of lockdown all the way until it, it was lifted up through you know, the time when folks were vaccinated and things were starting to calm a little bit. But the, the really interesting thing to me is that in that whole time, in the whole time between the shutdown and the time when folks were, for the most part, fully vaccinated and things were, were changing a bit, we only ever had one case of COVID in the church, and, and they emerged from it unscathed. But statistically, like, that is super weird. And this is during the time, I mean, try to kind of go back to that time. This was during like that super scary time when Little Company of Mary is bringing in a refrigerated morgue because they can't hold all the bodies in the basement any longer. They need more space because that many people are dying in the South Bay. But during that entire time, no one here died. And only one person even got sick during that entire period. I think of this too, just, just in the last few years. I mean, over, over almost 20 years now as a church, there's, there's a lot of these stories. But uh, just in the last few years, we've had several people diagnosed with very serious cancers uh, that have taken the lives of many. And they have come through those safely and gone into remission and gone on for more years of health. Uh, I think... I think, too, of, of our sister Claudette, you know, and her stroke. And uh, for, for many of us, I know I'm probably supposed to have more faith in this, but for many of us, I know we didn't expect that she was ever coming out of the hospital. Uh, it, it, it was so bad. It looked like it was going to be fatal. Uh, but, you know, here we have Claudette again worshiping with us and getting stronger and stronger and more and more lucid. Listen, this is one of those areas, friends. I think this is one of those things that plagues us as Westerners. This is an area where we need to lean in more. We need to ask God to bring healing now. There is an ultimate healing that is coming when Christ returns, and we look forward to that. But we need to ask God to meet us this way now as well. And I I know it gets weird. You know, sometimes... 
Uh, it can be discouraging or it can be embarrassing when, you know, you pray for this person and they don't get healed, but, you know, you pray for this person and they do. I don't know. Uh, I, will, I will be eager to ask Jesus someday why it ends up playing out the way that it does. But I, I know this. I know that even now in a world that has fallen and broken, when I step back and I, I look and I start kind of counting it up, it is astounding how often when we ask God to heal, that he does. And we need to lean into that more and more. James chapter 5, it says this. It says, are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. We need to lean into that. And we have a prayer team for that. And we have our vision team sometimes will pray over people as we're asked, and we love doing that. Um, and, you know, we can even email it, as we've said earlier in the service. Uh, but it's a good question to ask this morning. Is there an area where you need healing? In your physical body? In your mental health? Uh, in your emotional well-being? Is there a place where you need healing? The Bible says we should ask for it and trust God to respond. So what do we do with this? Jesus comes into this Easter week announcing himself as king and announcing the kind of king that he will be. Peace and justice and healing. And note this, friends. It's an important part of the passage. The passage starts with the crowds praising and, and rejoicing that Jesus has come as king. And it ends with the leader's opposition to Jesus coming as king. Right? And Jesus, he's declaring that this is who he is, and this is the kind of king, the sort of king he's going to be. But as, as we look on the folks in the story, they had to choose. You've got those who choose yes to Jesus' kingship, and those who say no. And no doubt you have some in that same crowd who on Palm Sunday are saying yes. No doubt they're part of those who on Friday are calling for Jesus to be crucified. Right? There's those who didn't want peace. They wanted a God of war who would, would take out all those enemies that are making their nation a terrible place. You have those that didn't want justice because it would bring too much disruption to their livelihoods and their lives and how they were living. And you have those who, for whom it didn't matter if this was a king that brought healing. The other costs were too high, and they'd rather hold them at a distance. And friends, the question for us today is, is what about me? What about you? We have to make that same choice. Jesus presents himself as king and as a particular sort of king. We, we don't have the option of molding him into the image that we would like him to be. This is who he is. Our choice is, will we trust him enough to follow? This morning, as we respond in worship, uh, I'd, I'd love for you to consider this well as we come to the communion table. What does it look like for you today to accept Jesus as king? 
Uh, For the person who's never received him, it might mean for the first time surrendering your life to him and saying, I don't know all that it entails, but I want you as king in my life. I want peace with God. I want to be part of your justice in the world. I want your healing in my life in whatever way you choose to give it. For others, it might mean returning to that after maybe a long absence of being separated from the king. In either case, it's, it's as simple as asking Jesus to come in and take that place in our lives. For those who maybe have walked with God for a long time, uh, perhaps uh, spirits brought to mind an area where uh, while in total you're sort of surrendered to the king, but there's places in your life where you're not. What would it look like today to offer those to Jesus and say, even in those places, I choose to honor you, I choose to follow you, I choose to have you as my king. Let's pray together.